Hello, and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna, I'm a senior fellow here at the Fund, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, we're sitting down with just one guest, something that those of you who are regular listeners will know we do from time to time on the podcast. The idea behind this is to hear from senior leaders in health and care about their leadership journey and their views on the big challenges currently facing the sector. So I'm honoured to be joined today by Dame Donna Kinnair, who is Chief Executive and General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing. Donna, welcome to the King's Fund podcast. Thank you. As an introduction, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? So... As Donna, I'm a nurse and I actually have been a nurse for 35 years. Um, I actually now have held many leadership positions but now actually run the Royal College of Nursing Mm -hmm. and that is both a trade union and a professional Royal College. So it deals with issues around professional practice and nursing policy but it also deals with matters that look after employment issues and the impact on some nurses and the wider healthcare family of the system issues. Great. We'll be talking a little bit about your career journey and workforce issues and also your views on leadership later in the episode. But first, to start us off, you've worked in nursing for many years, but let's go all the way back to when you were a child. What did you want to be when you were older? So as a very young child, I wanted to be a nurse because um, my father spent quite a bit of time as a chronic asthmatic in hospital. So that was when the idea to be a nurse, I suppose, it looked good. They had a really beautiful uniform and they seemed to be always doing things to my father. And they were sort of, it felt a bit sometimes like they were in charge. Right. So um, (laughs) I think as a young girl, uh, I probably wanted to be a nurse. And do you think that was about wanting to be in charge? Or was it about the uniform? I think it was more about the uniform. They yeah. just looked very glamorous. I don't, but they all, it, it felt as though they were doing things well with my father, if, yeah. you, if you know. So the care that he was receiving. Yeah. And I probably was very young at this time, so they were quite impressionable. Yeah. Um, and equally, I remember thinking that a doctor was a nurse because it was a female. Yeah. So oh. it was, you can see how yeah. long ago that was. Uh, so I, I think, you know, it was the natural thing for me to think that if I wanted to work in the health service, I would be a nurse. So you said when you were very young, did, mm. did you switch as you got older? What, yes, I, I changed. Right. Um, I think during school years, as I, I went to a grammar school. And so as I was doing um, my A-levels, I remember be, thinking about being a nurse yeah. and um, I was doing maths and English and physics. So it wasn't things that you would do and then automatically go into nursing. Yeah. So it's quite interesting that the advice I got was, oh, no, you're, you're going off to university. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually, there were two things that happened. I think um, also at the time uh, I was about 15 when my brother died and it okay. made me think about whether I wanted to be around death. So okay, actually, wow. that was a, a, a decision, I think, that helped me not to be a nurse straight away. But, so I didn't actually feel that I was going to have the skills or the qualities to be a nurse um, after having experienced that myself. So I actually did go off to university. Mm. I'm sorry to hear about your brother. And I guess having been around death so young, then that impacting on what you thought mm. you wanted to do. But you came back to it later on. Yes, it was something that was there. I mean, I left uni having done maths mm. and 
I suppose I always thought about nursing and I got married very quickly after, you know, I got married to somebody I went to school with. So it was quite important for me to have a job that I could always do. So it was teaching or it was nursing. But I ended up going into management training for Marks and Spencers. Okay. And so um, it was while I was at Marks and Spencers uh, and pregnant that I actually ended up speaking to an occupational health nurse who had said to me, she was just treating me or making mm. sure that my ankles weren't swollen because it was a standing role. I said to her, oh, do you know what? I always wanted to be a nurse. And she just looked at me and she said, well, you still can. You know, you're still young. What's, what's your problem? So actually that set me thinking about whether I would be able to do it, what I would do with a child. Um, I was a very young mother. Right. So it was, what would I do with a child if I was on my own ever yeah. in the future? So I'm okay. always, a, it tells you I'm a bit of a planner. Yeah, and thinking through all eventualities. <laughs> yeah. right. all, all eventualities. Um, yeah. So um, that, that made me sort of be curious about mm. it. And I applied while I was pregnant. Wow. And left the Marks and Spencer graduate mm. scheme. Mm. Wow. All prompted by this occupational health, health nurse mm. who asked you a question. Yes. Wow. And the NHS got you ever after. So you've told us about how it all started. And obviously, you're currently the head of the Royal College of Nursing. Can you tell us a bit about what happened in between in terms of some of the roles that you took after you started as a nurse? Yeah, so um, nursing was an ideal career for me because mm. you have a lot of variety in nursing. So at the time I trained, I spent some time looking after children. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I was a mother, so it, it suited me as well, working with other people's children. I spent time working in theatres and recovery. Yeah. Around the time that I trained, a lot of um, the nursing was about HIV and AIDS, so... I spent, um, as a staff nurse, time working with victims of HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. And actually, that was probably some of the toughest nursing because, it, you know, from a student nurse, I started in that era where actually when you looked at a patient, we didn't really know what was wrong with them. Yeah. We didn't know how contagious this condition was. Um, and very early in my career, I didn't know where it was going to go to. So it's all... It, it was very scary at the time, um, starting nursing at a time when you were faced with something that people had no idea. They just knew mm. that it impacted on the immune system. Yeah. And I remember my very first uh, care, we used to get dressed up in gowns and almost like spaceman suits to deliver care to, uh, to, to patients. patients. With, yeah. And I guess as a nurse, what you were very conscious of was the fact that people expect you to touch them Mm. when they're sick and that's often what we do when we're consoling another individual or you're delivering care so touch is very important and actually for me fundamentally it was difficult one of the most difficult things was actually you weren't really touching patients Mm. and that really impacts on the way you communicate with with patients and to be honest you you recognize that when people are that ill they are very vulnerable and you your role as a nurse is often to offer that support yeah. and to not really react but to hold their pain really yeah. um, and some of that is the way in which you communicate the way in which you speak the way in which you touch patients the way in which you deliver care and the way in which you respect that individual mm. and I think that was really difficult to do when you were masked up and gowned up so I think for me um, 
I, I think we nursed in some of the most difficult times um, until we saw that we didn't have to do that yeah. anymore and yeah. actually we could strip off the gowns and actually deliver care the way in which we were trained to do. And so that's fascinating just in terms of how it seems like you, you, in that experience you were getting to the core of some of what care and nursing is made up of. Yeah, and I think this reflects back to your own experience, really, because uh, being, you know, one of the things that I said to you earlier is that I'd had a bereavement at 14. So I knew when I became a nurse that sometimes it was about being with people and not saying silly things. Yeah. So you don't have to, you can't solve that problem for anybody, it happens. But actually just being present mm. um, and actually just being in the moment with somebody is important. So for me, I think... All of those things were life experiences that contribute to your nursing. And that, I think, is what what came to bear in that time period for me. Okay, so I wanted to ask, so you you served as a nurse assessor to the Victoria Columbia Inquiry back in, was it early 2000s? 2001. Yeah, which, I mean, I remember it being in the media and it being a very, you know, awful case. I just wanted to ask, what was it like being part of that and how did, what did, what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, it was, it was a total sort of, well, I was going to say accident, being part of that, mm. um, because I had um, decided in my head uh, before I joined that that I would not do, I was going to step out of child protection because I'd been in it a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I always feel that actually once you've seen things and you're seeing them again and again, um, it probably is time for you to leave it for somebody else to take up the baton. So I d- actually decided, and I remember when Victoria Columbia's death flashed up on the TV, I was on the phone to my sister in America, and I said, oh, there's been another child death. How, how glad I am that I'm leaving child protection. Mm. Little did I know that... Um, I was going to be called to, to be an assessor on the Columbia Inquiry. And I, I did think very long and hard about doing that role because it, it is a painful role. Yeah. Um, and particularly as my daughter was the same age as Victoria. Wow. So there was always, for me, a daily reminder mm. of um, the life that could have been yeah. um, because my, own, my very youngest child was the same age. So I think it gave me a perspective in terms of my role on that Mm -hmm. was to make sure that we actually did learn the lessons from that as a system and that we weren't saying it was the usual communications issues um, or the usual things that we said about child protection so for me it was very painful and I will always remember it as a time in my life when I think maybe maybe I should have thought a little harder because it was it was a year of constant you know seeing things and hearing things that actually you wouldn't really wish to be hearing on a daily basis but I think on reflection I remember um, when I'd finished the inquiry and I was talking to my chief exec at the time and I I did say to him on reflection I think we had done the best we could do in terms of turning every stone making sure that we'd looked at the system issues, not so much the individual issues, because I was very conscious that the media spent a lot of time looking at individuals. But actually, it was our job to make sure that we were looking at the system issues as well. And I think, you know, one of the reflections I have about that inquiry is it did um, 
look at the system issues. It didn't just blame yeah. individuals yeah. Um, because it recognised that they were operating in a system yeah. and that decisions wasn't at the individual practitioner level. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're, we often try to run to blaming individuals as well, this kind of bad apples. It's issue. easier it's because easiest, you can shift yeah. that one individual yeah. rather than sort the system out. So you'll be familiar with the fact that the NHS is currently struggling with a workforce crisis and I think figures are suggesting that there's uh, it's particularly bad in nursing where there's a shortage of over 40,000 nurses if I'm correct. I wanted to start by asking you about what you're hearing from your members about the impact of those shortages on those working in the profession right now. So I think for every nurse the importance of being able to give good nursing care Mm. is a priority. And I think what I'm hearing from members is that they're often not able to do this. Mm -hmm. So often, you know, you're juggling, aren't you? And you're prioritising. And that means that somebody isn't getting their drugs. Somebody isn't getting washed. uh, Somebody isn't getting the help that they need. And hospitals are, uh, are, you know, a pretty dangerous environment, particularly if you're an elderly patient with Alzheimer's. You actually do need the care that nurses can give. Um, just to keep you safe, really. Mm. Now, what happens is when there's not enough of you, you're not able to deliver that care. And if that constantly happens day after day, what also happens is people think, well, actually, if I'm not winning, I might as well opt out. So the first time, for the first time, we're seeing more people leave the profession than ever before. And that's problematic to me because that that starts a crisis because Mm. it then means, have we reached that tipping point where people are finding the job just too difficult to do? You know, so if your patient's constantly saying, nurse, can you do this, and you can't get to do it, or if you're crowded in A&E and there's nowhere to put someone, Mm. it eventually can lower your morale Mm. so that actually you think, well, maybe it's easier to work in Aldi. One of the concerns that we highlighted in mm. some of the work we've done at the King's Fund is around this idea of potentially there's we're creating a vicious cycle where, you know, you haven't got enough um, staff, you know, you've got loads of shortages, you haven't got enough staff there in the first place, and then the burden that's, that's put on the staff that are actually there, mm. um, where conditions have just become, the, the pressure becomes too much. And people start, um, you know, we're seeing that in sick leave, we're seeing that in bullying and harassment um, rates in the NHS staff survey. And then increasingly people starting to leave. And, and, you know, how do you get out of that cycle? So I think it's important that you're not going to get out of that cycle immediately. Mm. And I, I don't think the nursing profession would expect us to. But I think a priority for the profession and a priority for us as the college is that safe staffing is important. Mm. We cannot no longer I think as a profession tolerate our leaders and others saying how wonderful everything is when actually we know when we're boots on the ground that it's almost impossible for us to deliver safe quality of care and so I think the 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 vision that I have is the college really does lead the way in tackling the issues that are affecting its members and uh, you know when we talk to our members when we survey our members they say the biggest issue for them is safe staffing. And I think that's what we have to tackle. And whether that's um, in policy terms, whether it's the way in which we fund the education of nurses, whether it's, you know, the pay for nurses Mm. that means that 
you, you know, if you're going to, we've got a shortage in the profession now, so what are we going to give to, to attract mm. them? All of those issues, the education, nurses traditionally had a contract with the NHS, but we weren't well paid, but we were very well educated, mm. whether that was on the ground or whether we did courses and paid for them ourselves. But they were, we were learning. Yeah. Actually, if you're so busy that you're not able to learn or debrief from some of the events that you see, it, you may just reach a tipping point where nobody wants to do the, the, the job anymore. Yeah. And so it's important for me, as the leader of the Royal College, to put the voices of the nurses that I represent out there yeah. and actually make sure that those policymakers are taking account of the issues. Mm. And it's not just the issues for nurses, because... We deliver care, so it's the issues for patients. Yeah, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, if the nurse can't deliver good care, your patient isn't going to get good care. Yeah. We're not going to deliver the good outcomes. And we know how important the role of a nurse is in the improved outcomes to patients. And, I mean, you talk about safe staffing. I see that as the, the policy objective. Mm. Just briefly, what are the policy levers or mechanisms that you're calling for from the Royal College of Nursing for the government and national bodies to do to ensure there are enough nurses? So I think there's go, got to be an increase in the domestic supply of nurses. Yeah. So it's not good enough when you're in a crisis to leave it to the free market mm -hmm. because actually you've done a change that have just met, you've created a change by removal of the, the, yeah, yeah. the way in which we funded education yeah. and now we've seen a drop-off. We're not really seeing growth. So no matter how they dress it up, we know that we're not really seeing growth. Mm -hmm. So actually I think it's incumbent on the government to do something about that in the first instance. So whatever that looks like, whether it's targeted funding for, mm -hmm. you know, for education, I think it's, you know, they can't have missed a trick that actually if you've taken away something here and the outcome is worse, you might need to just put it back. Mm. So the first call is that we've got to increase the domestic supply of nurses. I think, you know, at the moment we have and its successive governments have relied on overseas recruitment by only yeah. training fewer nurses in our own country. And part of that is making it appealing to do the job of a nurse. So, you know, the more I, the one worry that I have is the more we highlight some of the issues, the more off-putting it can become. So actually, we want to talk about the benefits to nursing. I've had the most fabulous career. Yeah. And, you know, have nursed many, many patients. But equally... It does need investment. Yeah. And so we're calling for the government to acknowledge that they need to grow safe staff in numbers, but also invest in nursing education. Yeah. There's a lot going on right now. We've got a new prime minister in post who's made various announcements about the NHS. So capital funding, there's the workforce crisis, there's Brexit Potentially, it looks like we're set to leave the EU at the end of October. That could change. But given all of that, what is on the top of your list of asks to government? So whether or not we leave the EU on the 31st of mm. October, we still need to address the issues of our people, yeah. our health care, our education. That still needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So I think... Um, you know, whatever happens, we will still have to come back and look after the health of our nation. Yeah. And so for me, it's some it's just ensuring that those things don't get lost in the melee yeah. of Brexit. And I recognise that Brexit will have huge implications on health. 
trade deals will have huge implications on health. But I think it's important that the things that we've asked government for doesn't get lost in that melee. So we still need to increase our supply of nurses. We still need to invest in their education because that is what impacts on patient outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask you a bit about your experiences as a leader and hopefully be able to share some of your insights. What or who has shaped your approach to leadership over the years? I think as a child, I used to read a lot of autobiographies and yeah. um, about people's lives. I used to love reading um, the things that people did, so mm-hmm. Gandhi, you know, Nelson. Um, real learning from some of those issues. Even Barack Obama, you can just... Yeah. I'm always reading an autobiography with, okay, so what happened? So what what made them choose that path? But I I remember as a student nurse, I used to work on a haematology ward and I had a really forward-thinking oncology nurse that was leading that department. And the good thing about her was she was always calm. It was always a patient's issue. It wasn't her issue. She was always remaining calm and being able to hold that patient and whatever happened for them whether it was good news or bad news she was always there present and I think for me there was a lot of learning from that individual her name was Adrian but she was absolutely superb nurse but what I remember most about her is that nursing was quite hard in those days because I talked to you about you know having HIV Mm. Um, we also had um, the crisis with haematology patients and um, whether they were getting their drugs from their blood transfusions from America. So all of those issues were going on when I was training. But when Adrian would come on, she would always be respectful of what you had done. And she'd always say, oh, great, Donna's been on. And that, to me, would give mean that she had faith in the work that I had done Mm -hmm. during that night or during that day. And it was appreciative. So for me, one of the biggest things that I've always learned is that there's respect for people and respect for persons, really, but also being really appreciative of people doing and saying thank you, really, yeah. or noticing that they've done something. So I think that was a, a person for me that actually was always present mm-hmm. when you were speaking to her. She wasn't elsewhere. She was always present with patients, um, and she always took the time to notice you. You've held a variety of very senior leadership roles. What do you think are the qualities that make a good leader? So I think um, for me, there is that uh, that respect for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't lead unless you have a follower. And if you haven't got a follower, then you're not a leader. Yeah. So for me, it's something about how you share that leadership um, because you're not always the one person that has all the knowledge so for me it's about taking on board other people's opinions um making sure that they can input into what you're trying to achieve so while I might want to get somewhere it doesn't it may not be definite it may be that I can flex it so Mm -hmm. that I can accommodate Mm -hmm. um the wants of a wider group of people so I think that's really, really important to, that actually recognising that you can't be a leader without followers. You can't have a conversation with yourself. You've got to have a conversation with others yeah. in terms of the direction that you're going in. The other bit for me is being quite brave. Mm. So I think it's really always been important in my career to make sure that I'm, I own the decisions that I need to take. 
So if I, you know, think back at some of the really, really difficult times mm. of being a director in Southwark around the gangs and yeah. having a patient shoot a nurse dead. Wow. Some of it was taking those brave decisions about whether you're going to carry on care in that situation yeah. and put other people at risk or whether you're going to take that decision to remove it. Mm. And the other thing that I think that governs is being able to speak truth to power. It, it doesn't have to be rudely, but you do have to speak it. Mm. So there is no point in joining the masses that saying everything's good if you can clearly see it's not good. And I think those are the important things is that People, you, people stop listening to you if they don't believe yeah. that you're going to deal with the real issues. Mm. I think it's important to respect their views and to make sure that you bring them along with you and hear them. Um, but also, when you've got to take a decision, take it. Yeah, OK. And I love the point about bravery. And I guess I was just thinking as you were speaking about in your current role, undoubtedly you're speaking truth to power on a regular basis and I just wondered if it's as somebody much more junior in their career when I speak truth to power I get quite a physical feeling it's like a whole body you know flutters in your stomach and I just wondered if it gets any easier a little bit I guess because um there there comes a point in your career when it doesn't matter you're going to do the right thing anyway I guess that Earlier in your career, you're really worried about what's career limiting. Yeah. Um, so I think it gets easier from if you get to a stage in your life where you think, actually, I need to say this. Yeah. Um, so I think it becomes easier with as you get senior, more senior yeah. in your career. But I, th- I don't think that ever goes away. You are often on your own. Yeah. Because you, you know, if you're going to speak truth to power, you're going to go against the herd mentality mm-hmm. sometimes, and that is never easy because you might be in a room full of people and you can see that everybody's nodding at something and you can't even see that something that they're nodding at. Mm. You know that that's not factual or real. Mm. And sometimes you just have to call it out. And um, it doesn't get easier in, in that way because it still means that you're taking a brave act. It doesn't mean that I don't have... Um, butterflies in my stomach I've just learned as a nurse to calm them mm. because actually that's what you do in every single situation and they're there a lot yes yeah. yeah. so every single situation you'll always have those butterflies but I've just learned to make sure that they're not visible yeah okay I'm interested in learning from failure so I just wondered if you can think of a time a particular time when you failed as a leader or in your career and what you've learned from it? So I think, for, yeah, there will be many times that um, I've had to go back and learn mm. um, from things that haven't gone quite right, whether that's um, trying to change a department or do turnaround in terms of yeah. delivering services. I think for me, um, one of the earlier times in my career probably was how I got into child protection, really, mm-hmm was I I can be quite articulate and I can argue a point quite well. And I remember as a young nurse arguing for a child um, and its mother to stay together Mm. and actually for us to put services in and um, won the argument. Except for that weekend, that child was locked in the house alone. And so actually when you you are faced with um, being articulate and arguing well for something... And actually, the outcome on that child was hugely negative. I mean, you know, it was 
he didn't die, but actually it was a suffering for that individual. Yeah. You, it, it was quite interesting because um, my mentor at the time, I remember him saying to me, you know, being articulate and being able to argue well doesn't mean you get all the points. So it, it's important for you to actually observe mm. well. And, and it also taught me that you don't, you don't know everything. You no. don't know what you think you know sometimes. So it's important to recognise that you can only judge something on what you can see, and that's not always right. So that it's to still allow room for different possibilities mm. and questions. Yeah, and, and I think it's something when you've had an issue like that, it's not a mistake that you make too readily, or yeah. you are more cautious, rightly or wrongly. But I think you, you do learn, you do reflect about where your voice is mm. in delivering something. Mm. And if you could go back to the start of your career and give yourself just one piece of advice, what would it be? I think, for me, it's about finding joy in everything you do. I, I think my 20-year-old self sought to do that. I don't think it's the advice I gave myself then. But if I was now, I'd, I'd say, actually, that's the, been the most important thing in my career, is actually, if you can't find joy in it, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And so making yourself and others happy about what you're doing. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Donna. It's been a real privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Well, that's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks, as always, to our podcast team and our producers, Ian Ford and Sarah Murphy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have feedback, then please get in touch, either on Twitter, at The Kings Fund, or my account, at Helena Macarena. We hope you can join us next time. <laughs>